Hey, welcome to the podcast for Scotts Hill Baptist Church. We hope this message helps you discern what is true, what is right, and what is good. We pray it is an encouragement for you today. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning and welcome to Scotts Hill Baptist Church. Those of you who are joining us online this morning, we're so glad that you're able to join us. And those of you who are in the Cross Point Center this morning, let me give a shout out to you. We're so glad that you're there as you're filling in the gaps there, as you're signing up for your family to be able to minister in that area, whether it's at 930 or whether it's at our 11 o'clock service, we're so glad that you're here. And we're glad that all of you are here this morning. Um, It was a nasty morning to get up and get on the road and to drive. This morning, I had the opportunity to do something I've never had the opportunity to do before. I was at Wrightsville Beach this morning at 7 o'clock preaching at Surf Church. There is a Surf Church where surfers get together. They meet under the pier at Oceanic and had the opportunity to meet with a lot of those folks this morning and just be able to share my testimony and share the gospel with them. It was really encouraging to be there to see all the young folks and the older folks and anybody that shows up for free donuts and coffee. My, I want to give a shout out to Mark Johnson who's doing a great job organizing that and bringing those folks together. Well, as we continue to gather together, we have been in this mode for the last seven months. As COVID has hit and all kinds of an adjustment has made its way in all of our lives, whether it's with our jobs, whether it's with our leisure time, even dealing with church and what we're doing here this morning and what we've been doing. And as we began, we wanted to listen to all the regulations and the restrictions and the guidelines because we wanted to make sure that we were going to do everything we can to mitigate this virus around us. So we made for a long time only online services. And many of you still at home are enjoying these services to this this day. Um, But as we had the opportunity, we began to launch Beyond Online. On June 7th, we began meeting together, and we've been meeting at 9.30 and 11 o'clock in socially distanced manners, giving you the option to wear a mask or not wear a mask. As a result of all of that time together, we have not um, experienced any kind of a spread of COVID among our fellowship, either through services or through the ministries that we have enjoyed. So we're thankful and we're grateful for that. And then in an in a interval way, we, we are trying to bring back all of the ministries of Scotts Hill. And so what we began with, with our nursery, we began with our college ministry, we went on to our student ministry, our children's ministry, and we've been adding these different services. And then we added also our mask-only service. But as our elders have been praying about this and where we are, And um, what God's word informs us of as we gather together as the people of God and what we've seen among the statistics for those who are contracting COVID and are actually overcoming it. And because of prayer, we feel like there's another opportunity that we have to continue to seek to gather our people together in a less restricted way. So here's what we are wanting to do. On October 25th, we're going to begin a new process. In the 930 service, you're not going to have to register for this service or register your children for the children's ministry. This service will be open where we will fill in the gaps and fill in the rows and to be able to get more folks in. 
still giving you the opportunity to leave distance between your family and maybe the next group next to you. But we want to be able to reach more folks and bring more people back. So at 9.30 on October 25th, we're no longer requiring you to register for this. You just show up. You can wear a mask if you like or if you don't. And we're going to fill the gaps in so we can get more folks in. Um, you also will not have to register your children for the ministries, for the children's um, um, deliveries that we have on Sunday morning. So you can have the opportunity to just bring them with you. Now, at 11 o'clock, we are going to continue to social distance one another. We're going to have the mask, whether you want to wear them or not. And then at 11 o'clock in the Cross Point Center, we're going to maintain that mask-only service. So you'll have an option either to come to the, 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 the less restricted service at 930, come to the more restricted service at 11 o'clock in the worship center, or go to a mask-only service in the Cross Point Center. We're trying to accommodate as many people as we can, but we, our goal is to bring people back together as a body of Christ to worship. And we believe that we can do that with the statistics that we see and with all the things that are happening around us, want to just give you that information. So you consider those things that are coming ahead of you. Now, we've been in a book of Amos, and we're looking at this Old Testament prophet by the name of Amos. And we look at Amos was written in 750 B.C., and we recognize that the things that were happening in the days of Amos are so strikingly parallel to what's happening in our culture today. And so we've been unpacking this book, and we're calling it A Roar to Restore. Because all through this book, God is exposing the flaws and the sins of his people, but he's calling them to a place of restoration. Now, if you remember, Amos was just a businessman, a farmer, a cattleman, a fig picker. And God called him to leave Judah and go to the northern kingdom of Israel and to preach the word of God to them. And so he does that. And in chapter 1, we see and we introduce to Amos. In chapters 1 and 2, Amos goes and he preaches against the self-righteousness of God's people. They're pointing their fingers at all the other nations, yet God himself is pointing his finger at the heart of his own people. And they were very self-righteous. And in chapter 3, we find that there was a spiritual complacency among the people. What they said to be true wasn't real in their lives. And God is charging them with spiritual complacency. Last week, we began chapter 4. And in chapter 4, God is giving them three markers as warnings that they're coming to a place of no return. And God is laying out for the people of Israel what these specific markers are. Last week, we began in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and we looked at the first marker that God gives to them. And here's what we discovered. Marker number one was dysfunction in the home. The homes there were completely dysfunctional. They had walked away from God's divine pattern for marriage and family. The men had left their responsibility as loving, leading servants in the home, and the wives had given themselves to indulgence and pleasure of every kind, opulence, and all the things of that culture that could bring to them. Their children were neglected, and as a result, the home was completely dysfunctional. Now, they knew better because they had God's word. And in God's word, he laid out for them the clear divine pattern that he has for family and for marriage. And we saw there were four things last week that God lays out. Marriage has a divine plan. 
We are to reflect the very character and nature of the Trinity within our marriages, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Marriage has a divine parameter. There are specific parameters that God gives with respect to marriage. Marriage has a divine purpose. What is the goal of marriage? Is oneness and intimacy. And fourthly, marriage has a divine permanence. What God joins together, no one is to separate. Now, if you want to look at that message and you haven't been a part of that, I want to encourage you to go online, check that out, and listen to what God's Word says about this divine pattern. So there was dysfunction in the home. Now we come to marker number two. And we find it in verses four and five that he's given the second warning to the people of God that they need to turn around before they get to that point of no return. That point of no return would be the judgment of God and would be the discipline of God. Let me say this. God is not disowning his people. He's not saying you're no longer my people. God continues to love the people of Israel, and he's saying, but these are the things that are in danger. Your relationship with me, your intimacy with me, and if you continue this path, because I'm a loving father, I will discipline you. And there are consequences for your rebellious actions. The same is true for the people of God today. For children of God, when we sin, God never disowns us. He doesn't put us away and said, you're not mine anymore. If you're a true believer, you will always belong to him. But as a loving father, what does he do? He lovingly disciplines us and brings us to a place where we can move back to holiness and godliness. And while God disciplines us now, every person will stand before him one day and give an account of their lives in a scene of judgment. And so these are warnings, not only to the people of God 2,770 years ago, but for us today. And so what is the second marker that he gives in verses 4 and 5? Marker number two, distortion in the house of God. It is one thing for there to be dysfunction in a family, but that carries over into a distortion as people seek to worship the true God. He says in verses four and five, which is really astonishing what these people did. And here's how he says it. He says, come to Bethel and transgress to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel. Now what he says to them is, your worship is distorted. Your understanding of God has become confused. And what happens is there's a distortion in the whole way that you come to worship God. He says, come to Bethel and sin. Bethel was not a place to sin. The word Bethel means house of God. He's calling them to the house of God, but he's saying, you come on, keep coming to the house of God and keep sinning. Why were they sinning? It is the house of God, but here's what the people of Israel did. They brought in the foreign gods around them into their worship. They were bringing concepts of Baal, which is paganism, concepts of Asherah, which is the female counterpart of Baal, which the entire thing was built around sexual immorality. They were bringing all of these 
pieces of foreign worship into the church. They were buying into the philosophies of the gods of the land. And rather than coming to Bethel to hear the revelation of God's truth, to worship him, and to apply that truth to their lives, they were being infiltrated by the philosophies of the culture. And they were jettisoning the things of God. But it gets worse. You see, not only was their worship bringing in elements from outside, but Gilgal, multiply your transgressions. You know what Gilgal is? Gilgal is the place where the people of Israel camped before they came into the promised land. And as they camped there, they crossed the Jordan with the Ark of the Covenant. The waters parted. And then Joshua called the men, one man from each tribe of the 12 tribes of Israel, to take a stone and build a monument or an altar or a marker in the water. And they stuck these 12 stones on top of each other. It was to be a reminder of a couple of things. Number one, of God's provision in their lives for 40 years. Secondly, of God's kingdom principles that they are to live by. And every time they see the marker, it is to remind them of God's faithfulness and how they are to live their lives according to his word. But they began to walk away from that. And instead of focusing on those two things, you know what they did in Gilgal? They built an altar to a false god, and they began to worship it. They walked away from the true worship of God, and they walked into a different philosophy of living that was outside of the parameters of God's word. But it gets worse. He says, bring your sacrifices every morning. The people of God were not commanded to sacrifice every morning. Bring your tithes every three days. The people of God were not commanded to tithe every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of which is leavened. It was forbidden to offer leaven to God through a burnt offering. It was only to be unleavened bread. And proclaim free will offerings. Publish them. A free will offering is a private offering between the person who is worshiping and him or her and the priest and God only. It was not to be published for everyone. And he says, for you love to do these things. In other words, your worship has become outward only. It is a show. You're trying to outdo one another. And they loved their music. Oh my goodness, did they love their music. They had some of the greatest musicians in this time. They loved to go and sing. They loved the celebrated upbeat. They loved the reflective stuff. And when you went to a worship service there at Bethel, you probably thought, wow, man, they got it well organized. Everything flows so beautifully. The people are so excited. Look at all the sacrifices. Listen to all the praise. And in their minds... Man, they had it all going. But what did God think about it? Look at chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. God is speaking to them about their worship service. And he says, I hate, I despise your feasts. And I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Then he says, take away from me the noise of your songs. 
To the melody of your harps, I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. It's the only time in the Old Testament where we see these two words combined together, I hate and I despise. And God is saying, I take no delight. Your songs are noise in my ears. Why? It all stems back from one thing. They have jettisoned kingdom principles. And they began to live by a purely secular world view. Oh, they love to celebrate. They love to praise God. But the problem was, the most they had was dead religion. Because they refused to do what God demanded. There was no justice. There was no righteousness. There was hollowness. There was no holiness. There was no purity. There was no truth. When I think about the church today, I think how so many ways things are similar. And I think that when we look at the 21st century church and what's been happening, not just in our area, but the whole landscape of church in the Western world, we see some of these same things. I think of the accommodation of philosophies that we bring into the life of the church today. Secular humanism. You know what secular humanism says? Secular humanism says that humanity is inherently good. That humanity is good, it will work itself out of these situations. And then there comes prosperity gospels that flow from that because it's all about blessings and privileges and goodness. So secular humanism says we're inherently good. Then feminism comes into the life of the church and it says men are inherently bad. (laughs) And as a result of that, we drift away from God's divine pattern of this complementarian approach of saying that God's created us to complete one another and not compete with one another. And then we see evolution has come into the life of the church. And for many, they've just completely rejected the fact that God is the creator of all things. And then some people try to accommodate evolution in the life of the church by combining the two together with this This thing called theistic evolution that God uses evolution and billions and billions of years and he lets things just run its own course. And then we find things like moral relativism where people are saying you cannot know truth. And because we can't know truth, there's no right and there's no wrong. So we can't not hold each other accountable to these things because your truth is your truth. And then we begin to apply it to the authority of God's word. Can we trust God's word? Is it really inspired? Is that book inspired? Is that based upon culture? Is it based upon truth? And as a result, if we're not careful, what happens in the body of Christ is we begin to jettison kingdom principles and we begin to live by a different world view. Now, what is a worldview? A worldview is just simply a system that we use to help us understand experiences, how to interpret them, and how to respond to them. That's what a worldview is. And every person in this room has a worldview. You all have a view. You have a view that guides you in how to understand your experiences, how to interpret life, how to respond by it. 
You will either have a secular worldview that will be driven by the philosophies of the culture, or you will have a biblical worldview that's driven by kingdom principles. And every one of us walks by one of these views. Now, what is a biblical worldview? A biblical worldview is just simply seeing all of life through the lens of Scripture. And with a biblical worldview, the question is always this. What does the Word of God say about that? What does the Word of God say about what I'm feeling? How do I interpret this through the Word of God? So the Word of God becomes the template for every single question in life. That's a biblical worldview. Now, if you want to identify some components of a biblical worldview, this is what they are. That the Bible informs me, of course, about itself, the Word of God, truth, and morality. Through the Bible, I can understand value of life and family. Through the Word of God, I can understand who God is. I can understand creation and all of history. Human nature and character, lifestyle, behavior, and relationships. I can understand my purpose and my calling. I can understand sin, salvation through Christ, and relationships with God. And I can understand faith practices. A biblical worldview consists of about 51 questions, but they all fall into one of these eight categories. Now, the question comes, how are we doing today as a body of Christ in this landscape in the Western world with biblical worldviews? You might be interesting to see that we're not doing well at all as a church. We're really not. George Barna has done studies for many, many years, and he's come out with some recent ones that the information is quite disturbing. That many Christians want to say that they operate by a biblical worldview, but in reality, they don't. So let me give you some ideas of some Christian groups. How do three main Christian groups today respond to a biblical worldview? 9% of born-again Christians hold a biblical worldview. 9%. 7% of Protestants and less than one-half of 1% of Catholics hold to a biblical worldview. That is, that they use the Bible and scriptures to interpret every single thing in life from every question, feeling, or experience. Okay? So that's pretty low. Well, let's look at specific denominations. 13% of non-denominational churches have a biblical worldview. 10% of Pentecostals, 8% of Baptists have a biblical worldview. Now, if you wanted to break it down into generations, it's even more disturbing. 7% of elders, 75 and up, hold a biblical worldview. 6% of boomers, 55 to 74, I'm in that category. 5% of Generation X, 39 to 54. 2% of millennials today hold a biblical worldview. Now, when you look at this, it is quite disturbing. And you're looking at the number of people in our culture. The highest percentage is 7%. The lowest percentage is 2% among our groups. Now, the two areas that have the greatest biblical worldview in the United States are North Carolina and Texas. The one state that has the lowest biblical worldview is my home state of Louisiana. That's why I moved out and moved to North Carolina, right? But here's the most alarming thing, that if those stats are true, the overwhelming number of people 
in churches in America do not live with a biblical worldview in mind. And if we don't live with a biblical worldview, then the decisions that we make are not based upon truth, but based upon culture. I wrote this statement down. Many in the church are operating with a non-Christian worldview, but want to retain a Christian identity. That is a problem. And the problem is this, that I want to call myself a Christian. But don't expect me to live by kingdom principles. I want to call myself a follower of Jesus, but don't hold me to live to what the Word of God says. I want to say, yes, I am faithful to the cause of Christ. But when it comes to making decisions for my future, my convenience, my life, don't hold me to the principles that God calls us to live by. What happens when we do that? All the decisions of life become to be made by a culture whose theology changes every year. And not by the truth of God's absolute standards that never change. How does this play out? It plays out in all areas of our life. Let me just give you an illustration. I can't talk about all the issues, but let me give you an illustration. The sanctity of life. It's one of the greatest issues in our culture today, and it's one of the greatest issues surrounding this election that's coming up. If I have a biblical worldview, the way I view the sanctity of human life is going to be different than a person who has a secular worldview. And a secular worldview says that the beginning of life happens when the child is born. After birth, that begins the human process. Other before that is just a fetus. It's a blob of protoplasm. There's no identity. There's no personality. There's no life there. And then the other person that holds a biblical worldview says, no, I believe that scripture and science agree with this, that life begins at fertilization, at conception. And because I believe that, that is a human being from the moment that the sperm and the egg come together, there are human cells that never cease to be anything but human. And that DNA and the genomes are established for that human being for the rest of his or her life. Now, if you take a biblical worldview that it's life, and you take a secular worldview that it's nothing but protoplasm, it makes every difference in how you treat that being. And the problem is, if I have a secular view and I do not believe it's life, then I don't have a problem ending it. And I'm driven by that. But if I have a biblical worldview and that this is a person created in the image of God and God knows all of his or her days before they're one day old, to end that life is murder. It's premeditated. And I choose to kill. You see, the problem is this. We make our decisions based on the worldview that we have. 
And let me just say this, the sanctity of human life doesn't just stop once a baby's born. It's for the rest of that human's life. And here's what happens. We have people who choose to end that life. I would not have any confidence in them who would end a human life at birth to help somebody later in life. But neither do I have confidence in the church that holds to the sanctity of this life being born. But I do nothing to help them when they're oppressed or when they're poor or when they're homeless. Because it carries all the way to the end. You see, what happens is your worldview shapes how you make decisions. It's true about the sanctity of life. It's true about the sanctity of marriage. It is true about how you spend your time and your money and all of those things. Here's the problem. Oh, we can all jump on the bandwagon of the big issues. But what about the little things on how I raise my kids? How I invest in their lives? How I invest my time. How I sacrifice for the kingdom's work. You see, the reality is this. A biblical worldview is the template for which I make every single decision. And when we say that we're Christian by identity, but we're not allowing the Word of God to direct everything about my life, that I'm really contradicting myself and not allowing his word to transform us. Now, let me just say this. I'm guilty of this. Every one of us is guilty of this. But what do I pursue? Is the overarching question of my life, what does God's word say about that? How does God inform me of that? Is that true? Let me search the scriptures. What does the total context of the truth of God's word say about these issues? And will I allow his word, his kingdom principles, to drive my life? You see, here's the thing. If you don't follow a biblical worldview, then what happens is it ultimately leads to the third marker. What is the third marker? Here's the third marker. The decline of society. The decline of society. That's what we see happen in Amos' day. Their families were dysfunctional. There was distortion in the house of God. And now the trickle-down effect of that is a decline in morality and goodness in society. Somebody said this many years ago. As the home goes, so goes the church. As the church goes, so goes the culture. As the culture goes, so goes the country. As the country goes, so goes the world. It is true. Each one feeds into the next. And their culture was so depraved. In fact, what were the people of God doing? Oppressing the poor and crushing the needy. As a matter of fact, when you and I jettison the kingdom principles of the culture, the culture never evolves. It devolves. And it always moves to chaos. What happened with the people of Amos in that day was mass unrest. There was injustice. There was oppression. There were riots. There were, was lawlessness. There was chaos in the streets. Jesus said this to his people. He said, you are the salt of the earth. 
You are the light of the world, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You know, salt has incredible qualities. Salt adds flavor, but let me tell you what else salt does. Salt prevents from decay. It is an antiseptic. Light is a wonderful thing. It has many wonderful qualities. It has warmth, but it brings revelation of truth. When the body of Christ jettisons the kingdom principles, then we no longer can be salt in the culture where we can prevent moral decay. Nor will we be light that will be speaking truth from God's word. And as a result, when there is no antiseptic in the culture and there is no light for direction and truth, then the culture will plunge into chaos. What happens? God calls the people at this point to return to him. Five times he says return. He says, listen, your families are dysfunctional. There's distortion in my house. There's decline in the culture. Stop. Turn around right now. You are about to go to a point of no return. And here's what he says in Amos 4, 6. I have... I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. Now, cleanness of teeth doesn't mean that their teeth were white. It just simply means you don't have any food in them because you're starving. And lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Verse 7, I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain the, um, and the field on which it did not uh, would wither. Verse 8. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Verse 9. I struck you with blight and mildew and many gardens of your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. He goes on. I said, among you pestilence after the manner of Egypt, I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go into the, your nostrils, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Five times, God says, I brought all this discipline on you. Five times, I'm, getting your, I'm warning you. And yet you refuse to turn to me. And in verse 12 comes the crescendo of it. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. That doesn't sound good, does it? Prepare to meet your God. A couple of weeks ago, I was watching the return with Jonathan Kahn on Washington and he was preaching, and he had taken this vase, and he was going to break the vase to declare the judgment of God. And when he broke the vase, a bunch of people in the crowd started cheering. I'm like, what? You're cheering for the judgment of God? People don't understand what the judgment of God really is. All through Scripture, we see that it says this is not a day of joy. This will be a day of horror. This will be a time where God himself shows up and brings a judgment on his people because of their rebellion and their refusal to repent. And not one of us, when we're standing before the Lord Jesus one day, will we be just like, yeah, I'm ready for this judgment. No. It's an account 
for those areas of our lives that we lived in the flesh as opposed to the Spirit of God. But then God says this in verse 13. It's amazing. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. What does that mean? It's very poetic. But when he says the God of hosts, he's talking about the God of the armies of heaven. And while they would not return to God, they will ultimately face the consequences of their rebellion. But here's the great truth. God returns to them. And he gives grace upon grace upon grace. At the end of this chapter 9, and at the end of this study, we're going to see the incredible hope that God brings to man through the redeeming work of his son, Jesus Christ. So what would I say in closing? Here's what I would say. God is warning us. I believe he's warning us as families that we need to take seriously the responsibility that he's given us of the divine pattern for our homes. I believe he's warning us to take seriously as believers to walk by his kingdom principles. And that the decisions that we make are always driven with a biblical perspective in mind. And that we are to see that we are called to be the salt and the light of our communities. And if justice and righteousness are going to be ushered in, it's going to come from the people of God who are walking according to the word of God because of their love for God. And God is calling us to return. Here's the most wonderful thing I see about all of this. That you and I were both like the people of Israel at one point. We were running headlong away from God. But God in his mercy came to us through his son, Jesus. He sent Jesus to take on human flesh. He sent him as the redeemer of our souls. He came and took our place on the cross. He died our death. He experienced God's wrath when it should have been ours. He became our sin. So we would become the righteousness of God in him. God came to us. And for the child of God, he never leaves you. He never forsakes you. He is for you. But he also warns us because he loves us. And he says, stop. Stop. Return to me. Return to me. Walk by my truth. Let it guide your family and your life and your business and your leisure. Walk in my truth. Be the salt and the light that ushers in righteousness to your community. Here's the roar to restore. One, does my home reflect God's divine pattern? In God's grace, he's calling us to that. Walk in that. Two, 
Does my life reflect kingdom principles? Am I living by the standard of God's word or am I adapting to the secular worldview that has no stability and no life? Three, do I display the gospel in my love for the least? We can watch the television. We can get on all of the social media sites. We can hear all that's going on. We can say that's terrible. I agree. I disagree. But at the end of the day, what are you doing? What are you doing? What am I doing to be salt and to be light right where I am? So as we listen to the Word of God 2,770 years ago, isn't it so relevant today And that we would make a commitment to listen to the warnings and return and say, Father... I'm yours, and I will live by your divine pattern. Some of you here this morning and some of you watching, you may not be believers. You don't know Christ. You've never considered the claims of Jesus. But let me just say to you today that God wants you to know the truth, that he does love you, and that he has provided a way for you to have a relationship with him. And he is giving you opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And if you turn away and walk away, then you walk past the grace of God in your life. Surrender to Him today. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your truth. And Father, as we continue to seek to do these things, Father, I'm so grateful for Your patience and Your kindness towards us. And Father, that we will walk in them. Father, I want to pray for our country. I want to pray for our nation. Never a time have I seen this nation so divided. Never a time have I seen so many different opinions and perspectives. Never a time have I seen even the church divided over political positions but Father I pray that you would give us wisdom I pray Father that your people would not listen to the secular philosophies of the day but Father we would be driven by the truth of your word and Father that we would put your truth above a party line we would put your truth above a candidate that Father we would put your truth to be the measurement for every issue And Father, our decisions would reflect a biblical worldview. Father, we ask that you would give us wisdom as we vote. That we would vote according to the issues and what Scripture informs us of in those issues. And that your word would be the standard and the compass for our lives. Father, I ask for our leaders that you would give them civility. I ask, Father, that you would continue to show your kindness and your grace to this nation. And I ask, Father, that we would yield to you as your people to walk according to your ways. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. 
Thank you for joining us on the Scotts Hill Podcast. Thank you to those who continue to give generously to this ministry. If you want more information about Scotts Hill, how to get connected in your community, or want to know more about Jesus, visit www.scottshill.org slash podcast for more information. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe to get notifications of future episodes. You can also share it with your friends via text message or take a screenshot and post it on your social media stories. Make sure to tag us at Scotts Hill. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.